I thought this is a, <clears throat> a marvelous coincidence. If you believe in coincidences, right? Here we are, we're at, 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 at the Christmas season when the focus for so many is on the, on, the, on, the, on the gifts that we share with one another, the gifts of love and such, and, uh, and the gifts that God has provided for us. And how apropos to, to conclude this section on, uh, on this Christmas weekend. I want to review with you quickly where we are up to this point. We've been talking about spiritual privileges as a result of coming to Christ and what those privileges are that accrue to those who have come to Christ. What, what graces, what privileges, what blessings, what favor do we enjoy? And Peter outlines them for us in this section, uh, verses 4 through 10. And we've already studied union with our Lord. Because we are in Christ... We have union with Him. Isn't that true? We're united with Christ. We also uh, have access to Him as priests. You may or may not consider yourself a priest, but the Bible calls us priests to God, a holy priesthood. And later on, He says that we are a royal priesthood. He talks to us about our security in Him. He who trusts in Him, who trusts in Christ, will never, ever be disappointed, never be ashamed. Never be let down. Christ will never fail. What a tremendous, tremendous thing to be secure in Him. Fourthly, we have an affection for Him that, that, that is, that's God's love put into our hearts for, for Him. We can't muster that love ourselves. God indeed grants us that great privilege to love Him and He gives us the love to do it. We know we're chosen by Him, that we have dominion with Him, that we rule and reign with Him. In the, in the coming age, when we, are, when we see Him, we will rule and reign with Him over a whole new created order. And whatever else God has prepared for those who love Him. We have a, a certain separation. We're separated to Him. We are a holy people, a holy nation. We are distinct just for His purpose. What a privilege. What an absolute marvelous privilege. And we are the very special possession of the Lord. Again, a marvelous privilege for us all. And that leads me to the next in our series of privileges. We find this in verse 9. If you want to read verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. I want to focus on that last section of that verse, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Beloved, you and I, as Christians, have the tremendous spiritual privilege of the enlightenment, of being enlightened in the Lord. Enlightened in the Lord. But to understand the enlightenment, you have to understand the first part, the darkness. And with that, I want to ask you a question. What is darkness? When the New Testament talks about the darkness, what is that exactly? It's the disastrous state of sin. And all that that implies, it's the disastrous state of sin. It is the disastrous state of the unregenerate person, the unbeliever. It's the absolute disastrous state of that person under the darkness of the prince of darkness, Satan himself. It is an absolute hopeless state of being. Darkness. And darkness speaks of two things. 
it speaks of ignorance and immorality. Ignorance and immorality. In other words, there's an intellectual darkness and there is a moral darkness. It's all-encompassing. You must grasp the, 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 the intensity of this idea of darkness if you're to appreciate the privilege of being called into His marvelous light. The darkness is both intellectual and it is moral. There's an intellectual darkness, there's a moral darkness. Intellectual darkness means you, you cannot see the truth. You cannot see the truth. Remember when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again? You cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless what? You are born again. You've got to be taken out of this intellectual and moral darkness. You don't have the equipment to see it. And so the intellectual darkness means you cannot see the truth. The moral darkness means you cannot see righteousness. You cannot see righteousness. You do not know what is right, and you cannot do what is right. That's an absolute statement. That's the statement that the Bible makes. That's what it means to be in darkness. You cannot only not know what is right, you cannot do what is right. That is, that's what it means to be in the darkness. But, says Peter, you have been called out of darkness. Isn't that glorious? You've been called out of darkness. And who has called you? God himself has called you out of darkness. And to be called, beloved, refers to the election of God put into action. We've talked about this before. In the epistles, in the epistles, when you see that word called, when you see the called and the various expressions surrounding that word called, that is never a general call to the masses to salvation. That is always God's effectual call, as the theologians put it, unto salvation. It is the call of God unto salvation. You have been called unto salvation. You've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And Peter is saying that God has called you sovereignly out of darkness. And he's called you into his marvelous light. Isn't that, isn't that tremendous? What a privilege. What a privilege. And that saving call is something that Peter rehearses a number of times throughout this epistle. In chapter 1, verse 15, you see, he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy. In chapter 2, verse 21, you see it again. To this you were called. And then again, in chapter 3, verse 9, uh, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, with, but blessing, because to this you were called. So you see this, this effectual calling of our life. And lastly, in chapter 5, verse 10, he says the same thing. And the grace and the God of all grace who called you. So Peter rehearses and uses that term called, and it refers always in the epistles to the effectual call to salvation. When you see it in the Gospels, then it is a general call of the masses uh, to salvation. But in the epistles, it's a more particular call, and it's the effectual call. So God has called us out of intellectual darkness. He's called us out of moral darkness into His wonderful light. Aren't you glad for that? 
Aren't you glad for that? He's called us out of these, this incredible darkness. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says it another way. He says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His Son whom He loves. And the kingdom of His Son is a kingdom of what? Light, isn't it? It's the kingdom of light. <laughs> so it's important to understand what it means to be in the darkness. Now, what does it mean to be in the light? Well, if the darkness means that you, you are without intellectual understanding or moral understanding, you don't know what's right and you cannot do what's right, what do you think the light to be in the light means? Just the opposite, huh? It means, basically, that now we have intellectual, intellectual understanding and we have moral character. That's what it means to be in the light. This is what God gives us. This is part of the privilege of being a Christian. This is part of the gift of salvation and the gift of life. Now, not only do we, uh, we know what's right, beloved, we can do what's right. We couldn't do this in the, as, as, as a, as a non-Christian, as a non-believer. It was impossible. So there's both truth and righteousness. There's knowledge and obedience. We've been rescued from not knowing what God wants and not being able to do it to knowing what he wants and being able to do it now. That's what it means to come from darkness to light. That's the call of God, the effectual call of God to enable us now to do and to know and understand what we could not possibly know before. And this transition from darkness to light is remarkable. It's remarkable because you have to understand the depth of the darkness it's remarkable because not only is the unbeliever in the darkness, the darkness is in the unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't even know they're in the dark. And the dark so pervades their being. This was our condition, beloved. I don't know about you, but before I became a Christian, I was clueless. I was clueless. Now, I understood, uh, I understood relative goodness, right and wrong, to a degree, I had a sense of conscience. I had some limited understanding of God, but it was not at all what the Bible teaches. Was that, was that, a, fair, is that a fair assumption for most of us? All of us, if not? Sure. The darkness is so pervasive, you are not only in the dark, you are a child of darkness. That's what the Bible calls us. A child of darkness. Not only that, but we loved the darkness. We loved it. John chapter 3, verse 19, says that men love the darkness. Light, the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness instead of the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Why? Because we wanted to hide. And there's still a temptation to hide, isn't there? Even now as Christians, even as children of light, when we sin, there's still a temptation to hide. There's still that, that part of us, our humanness, that still loves and tends towards the darkness. You see how pervasive the darkness is? How powerful it is? Not only is all this true, but as a non-believer, we don't even know that there is light. I mean, this is how pervasive the darkness is. You don't even know that there's light. That's why you can be an atheist all the years of your life and give no thought to the light. 
John says it in chapter 1 of his gospel, verse, 15, verse 5. He says, the darkness has not understood, the darkness has not comprehended the light. We don't even know there's light. Duh! I mean, that's why when you become a Christian, there's such a stark difference. All of a sudden, it's like my friend Moody, many of you know him, he, when he became a Christian, he was our, he's our neighbor, and my wife and I witnessed to him for years, and, and he came from a Muslim background, and, uh, you know, was a nice guy, thought he'd humor us and be friendly and such, but God just began to do some incredible things, and he became a Christian, and he said, the light is on. I couldn't express it any better. The light is on. But as non-believers, we don't even know there's light until the light goes on. When you perpetually live in the darkness, and the darkness so pervades your being, you don't even know that there's light. And when you become a Christian, something happens. There's a transformation. You go, whoa. And you see like you've never been, it's like someone has turned a light on for you. Isn't that the truth? Do you see the difference? You and I didn't turn the light on, beloved. This is what makes us such a marvelous, exciting, thrilling privilege and gift of God. He has called us out of the darkness into His marvelous, tremendous, wonderful light. Aren't you glad for that? So the depth of darkness is so profound and God in His grace calls you out of darkness because of His own desire to do so. Isn't that that tremendous? How rich and how blessed we are. How rich and how blessed we are. And how we must go back to the reality that it has to do with nothing we deserve. Nothing we deserve. And then Peter goes on to tell us about yet another wonderful privilege in verse 10. Read with me verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I want to suggest to you that the 10th in our series of spiritual privileges is mercy. It's mercy. Now Peter, in this this particular verse, is drawing on his knowledge from the prophet Hosea. And Hosea, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we won't go there, but I'm going to refer you to the verses, (laughs) says this. God speaks to Hosea, to Israel. He says, you are not a people, but you will be a people. There will be a time when you will not receive mercy, and then a time when you will receive mercy. Now, God is speaking to Israel, and they, we know that Israel is God's chosen people, right? Okay? And He calls them His special chosen people. But through their own sin and apostasy, they became, in effect, a no people. God turned his back. You read Hosea and you see it, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He spells it out to to them through the prophet Hosea. But interestingly, if you turn to to, uh, uh, Romans chapter 9, you see the same thing here rehearsed by the Apostle Paul. That which was said of Israel is applied now to the church and it's applied to Gentiles. This is a significant passage. Romans chapter 9, verse 15 
God says this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then in verses 23 through 26, he says this. He says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, Paul quotes from Hosea. Peter paraphrases from Hosea, but Paul quotes from Hosea. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So both Peter and Paul reach back and apply Hosea's words to the church, who were once not only not the people of God, the church, you and I, were not only at some point not the people. We weren't even a people in terms of a corporate identity. We're a mishmash, aren't we? We're the gathering from every tongue, tribe, and nation, are we not? So he says, to those who are not my people, I will call my people. What, a, what an awesome thing. What an awesome thing. And particularly those who are Gentiles who were no people, are now the people of God. Are now the people of God. And what, what's the means? This is, this, is, this, is, this is tremendous. What's the means for a no people to become the people of God? What's the means in verse 10? Can you pick it out? Mercy. It's mercy. God is merciful. If you go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, in view of God's what? His mercy. God is merciful. Turn to your neighbor and say, you know what? God is so merciful. He has been merciful to me. Israel had become a no people through their sin and apostasy. They who were a people of God had become a no people. God had turned his back on them. He rejected them for a season because of their sin and apostasy. And then a no people, the Gentiles, became the people of God. It's just amazing. And the whole means for that to occur, for you and I to get into the family of God, get into the kingdom of God, for the church to come into existence, is because of the mercy of God, Amen. beloved. The mercy of God. And just what is mercy? Just what is mercy? Well, very simply, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's pity. It's compassion. <laughs> It's pity. It is God's. Here's, here's a really the definition of mercy. It is God's withholding from us the just punishment of our sin. It is God's withholding from us the just punishment of our sin. Aren't you glad that God has been merciful to you? Aren't you glad that the moment you came into existence, he did not incinerate you? Because we are what? We are conceived in sin. We are born sinners, a brand new little baby. How, how sweet and how wonderful and how seemingly innocent that baby 
is a born sinner. And it isn't going to be too very long before that baby, the first word out of its mouth is no. (laughs) Evidence of that sin nature. True? Now, there are two kinds of mercy. There are two kinds of mercy. The first kind is general mercy. General mercy. This is God's providence to the widest range of human beings, to all the earth. God's general mercy. It shows us his patient pity, his forbearing compassion to sinners. Because you see, God has every right to incinerate sinners, does he not? He doesn't owe us a thing. We're the rebels. That is so hard for people to get a hold of. When you say that to someone, you say, you are a sinner. You are a rebel against God. People just tighten their jaws. Don't say that to me. Don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. But that's our very sin nature standing up in rebellion to the truth. Still in the dark, huh? Even even now as Christians, we don't even like to hear that. But that is the truth. God does not owe us anything except to incinerate us, to consume us immediately. I mean, when you understand the truth of this, you you appreciate appreciate His, His mercy, His compassion so much more. You go throughout the entire day, God, thank you for your mercy to me. Those who, those who don't know him, those that reject him, those that hate him, God still shows to them his general mercy. Isn't he amazing? Listen to Lamentations chapter 3. Book of Lamentations. Jeremiah says this, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that marvelous? This is, this is a statement of God's great compassion. It's a general statement of the Lord's mercy and compassion. He is just compassionate. He is merciful. <laughs> Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. That's a statement of His what? His general mercy. His general compassion. Excuse me. What it means, very simply, is that God alleviates the present, full, potential disaster of sin. He doesn't burn everything and everyone up immediately. Great, huh? Oh, man. The average sinner that's out there walking around, the unbeliever, doesn't know, doesn't really realize, has no understanding of the mercy of God extended to them in this life. But there comes a time when the mercy of God runs out. Isaiah alludes to this in chapter 27, verse 11. He says, when its twigs are dry, they are broken off, and women come and make fires with them, for this is a people without understanding. So their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favor. Those are people who just just are absolutely... Oblivious, 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 oblivious to God. And at some point, for the unbeliever, his mercy and his compassion does come 
to an end. Aren't you glad that we are believers? And that leads us now to the second kind of mercy. We'll call this special mercy. So what was the first kind of mercy? General. And that was to everybody, right? To all of his creation. But now there's a special mercy. And this is what Peter talks about here in, in his passage to us in verse 10. Special mercy is equally, beloved, undeserving. Is general mercy deserved? No. And if if general mercy is not deserved, certainly special mercy is not deserved. For we are sinners like all the rest, right? We don't deserve this special mercy. Now, for some people, God is generally merciful in this life by alleviating the present full potential disaster of sin. And for other people, he alleviates forever that potential disaster of sin. So some people get it alleviated just during this life. Others get it alleviated forever and ever and ever. Those are the elect who receive not only the general mercy in this life, but they receive special mercy in the life to come. Somebody say hallelujah. I tell you, I'm just so blessed by this. So in the case of the unregenerate, God withholds judgment temporarily. He exhibits general mercy to the unregenerate just during this life. But for believers, he forgives their sin and eliminates the judgment totally, absolutely special mercy. You say, why? Why does God do this? Because he wanted to. Does he not have the right? Does he not have the prerogative? Is it not his privilege? Because he wanted to. You say, why did he want to? Because he just did. Because he just did. The Bible doesn't give us any more information. It's just like, why did he choose us? He just did. Why? He just did. I don't know. I'm just thankful. I'm just thankful. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 Micah speaks of God this way. He says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression? Oh, what a marvelous passage, huh? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression? There is no other God like this. You just stand in awe and you just go, There's no one like you. There's no one like you who's shed His mercy upon my life. And beloved, you need to know that it's not, it's not the wickedness of the sinner and the wretchedness of the sinner that causes God to show mercy. You think about this, you think, well now, why, why does God show this mercy? And we can come up with some good reasons. And I'm going to suggest to you three reasons that people put forth why God shows His mercy. And I'm going to suggest to you, those are not the reasons God shows mercy. They make sense to us, but not to God. So pay attention. This is important. It is not the wretchedness of the sinner. Now notice what I'm saying. It is not the wretchedness of the sinner that causes God to show mercy. You hear what I just said? It's not our condition that causes him to show mercy. He owes me nothing. You must understand the import of that. 
Beloved, because it strips us of every remnant of pride. Every remnant of pride. This is so critical. God is not sitting in heaven saying, Oh, I feel so sorry for all those sinners, and I'm so upset emotionally about their sin that I'm going to be merciful to them. God does not show mercy out of a certain feeling for the wretchedness of man. Because if that were true, then God would have to be merciful to everyone. And clearly, He is not. Clearly, He is not. Now, there's a tension here, and this is hard for people to get a hold of. Because it makes God seem unfair and unjust. But if you go back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, what shall we say? Is God unjust? No, not at all. If you have struggle with this, you go back and read and study Romans chapter 9. We don't have time to do it this morning, unfortunately. (coughs) Beloved, God is not influenced by our misery. If he were, then he would have to save every single person because every single person is miserable. And it's clear that he does not. That's not the compelling issue. Our wretchedness, our misery is not the compelling issue. It doesn't compel God to have mercy and to show us mercy. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) Secondly, God is not compelled to show us his mercy because some of us sinners are more worthy of mercy than others. Well, I'm not quite as bad as those really bad sinners. So therefore, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, at least I probably deserve a little bit more mercy. Now, I don't know about you, growing up as a, with siblings, did you ever grow up with brothers and sisters and feel like, I deserve better than them because I'm better I'm the better child. I'm not the bad seed. Yeah, we, we have this innate sense. You look around and we think, I mean, just even in our own, our own relationships and people at work, and you say, well, I'm better. I deserve more. That very thinking affects how we, how we think about God. It's a subtle kind of a thing. Well, yeah, we're all sinners, I understand, but I'm not as bad as Dana. So I deserve mercy. It's okay to pick on you, huh? Sure. All right. None of us are worthy of God's mercy, right? None of us. And if it were, if we were worthy of God's mercy, any of us, it wouldn't be mercy, would it? It wouldn't be mercy. Because mercy is holding back the just judgment that we deserve. Mercy is holding back the just judgment that we deserve. Am I making sense? Remember, Isaiah says, all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. And you know, you know what he's referring to. Many of you know that passage. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a t- disgusting kind of a thing. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one deserves it. All have gone astray. So it's not a matter of any of us being better than others and deserving it. And furthermore, beloved, this is going to blow some categories. God is not merciful to some of us because Christ made it possible for him to be merciful. 
He's not merciful to us because Christ made it possible for him to be merciful. Because you hear people say, well, because of what Christ has done, God wants to pour out his mercy. Because of what Christ has done, God wants to pour out his mercy. If that were true, since Christ died for all, and mercy would have to be then available for all, and God would save all, and obviously he does not. Do you see the subtlety in this? So it's not the wretchedness of the sinner that compels God to show mercy. It's not that some sinners are more worthy of mercy than others. And it's not simply that because the work of Christ, God can be merciful. You say, well then, why did God choose to be merciful? Because he chose to be merciful. There you go. Because he simply chose, he is not compelled at any level, in any way, to be merciful. We don't deserve it. Because Christ died for our sins, doesn't compel God then to show mercy our very pitiful, wretched condition does not compel him to show mercy. He shows mercy simply because he chooses to show mercy. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. He's not obligated, not in one single bit. Do you have that understanding of God? Now, for you and I, as weak, fallible human beings, we stand back and we say, hmm, hmm, hmm. When we ought to be falling on our knees and falling on our face and say, God, thank you. When you go, hmm, that just shows your pride. That just shows your arrogance. Calling God to account and calling God into question. You must understand this. Mercy. Mercy. He has shown us great mercy, beloved. Great mercy. We have been chosen by his uninfluenced sovereign grace and love before the world began. We are blessed. We are privileged. We enjoy his favor. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. We saw this verse before. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done. Not because we deserve it, not because we're cute, not because we can add anything. Does God need us to add anything? No, He is what? Totally self-sufficient, complete. He doesn't need us. He just wants us. Imagine that. Look around. Have a good chuckle. He wants us. Can you believe this? But because of his mercy, he extended mercy to us. He extended mercy to us. Aren't you thankful for that? And what's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of all of this, of all these privileges? Why are we so privileged? Ah, to understand that, we go back to verse 9. We go back to verse 9, and therein we find yet still another in the last of our privileges. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Here it comes. That you may what? 
Declare the praises of Him. Declare the praises of Him. You go, oh, oh, oh. I mean, people, people do all sorts of things to get those ambassadorships. You know that. They are, they are plums. Political plums. And the kind of, 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 of influence that derives from having that position is incredible. People do incredible things to get those, those positions, to get those appointments. But you and I have what? We've been appointed as ambassadors of the living God. Of the living God. Oh, my. Oh, my. I mean, you understand this. You just, it just blows your mind. When people say, what do you do? What's your purpose? What's your role in life? You say, I'm an ambassador. I've been called to declare the praises of him who rules and reigns over all, the great creator. Oh, yes, and I sell computers on the side. I'm a doctor on the side. I'm a dentist on the side. I'm a, I'm a homemaker on the side. But really, my real role, my real purpose in life is to declare the praises of him who's called me out of darkness into his wonderful light, who's blessed me with so many privileges to declare his praises, to speak about him, to tell others about him. Think about that. How do you view your role in life? How do you view your role? I was, I was a few years ago, I was asked by somebody fairly influential, because I'm a pastor of a, of a relatively large church, and, and fairly well known, and, and I was asked to lend my support to a political cause, and to speak out on some, some particular issues, to lend my voice, to lend my opinion. And I said to this person, I said, do you really think that the world needs another person's opinion? Well, yeah, but you're a pastor, and you can lend a certain uh, thoughtfulness to this whole process. I said, my friend, that's not my job. That's not my role. My role is to declare the glory and the praises of him who called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's my role. That's my privilege, to speak his word, to study his word, to speak forth the things and the glories of what he has done, what he's accomplished. What's your role? What's your role? What's your purpose in life? Peter tells us very, very, very clearly right there. It's not only our purpose, it is a distinct privilege to declare his praises, to tell others about him. Let me tell you about the wonders of the God that I worship and serve. Let me tell you what he's done. Let me tell you about the heroic deeds and the miracles it has accomplished. Let me tell you, he's come into my life and he's changed me. He's opened my eyes. I understand now. I understand what it's all about. He's put my hand to the plow. And there's no turning back. There's no turning back. As much as the world calls me, as much as the world wants me, as much as the world is appealing, there is no turning back. 
I've been called to declare his praises. I've been called to, to speak his, his word. What's your role? What's your purpose? It's not just me. It's not just me that does this. It's all of us, beloved. It's all of us. Every single one of us. It's your privilege to be an announcer. A bold announcer of the mighty, heroic, miraculous deeds of the living God. Our God who has saved us. Do you speak his words? Do you tell others about him? Do you proclaim him? Do you announce him? The word that is translated here to declare, it's a unique word. This is the only place it is used in the entire Bible. And it's a strong, powerful word that Peter draws on. It's used in no other place. It means to declare, it means to advertise, it means to speak out, it means to tell out all that he is and all that he's done. That's what it means. What a privilege. What a privilege. Beloved, we are a privileged people. Would you agree? Are we not an amazingly privileged people? Absolutely. Let me me close with this. All of these privileges... All of these privileges come to us only for one reason and one reason alone. Because we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ. Let me rehearse them for you and let me show you. We are in union with God because we are in Christ. And Christ is one with God, right? We have access to the Father and access into His glorious presence because we have access through Christ. We are secure in our relationship to God because we are in Christ and He is secure in His relationship to God. If He's secure, guess who else is secure? Me, because I'm in Christ. I'm inseparably bound to Christ. We have... We love God because we were first loved in Christ and His love has been poured into our hearts. The only reason we are elect is because we are chosen in Him before the creation of the world. That's what the Bible says. As far as dominion goes, our dominion is because we reign with Him. And we are only holy Because we are in Him. You can't be holy unless you're in Him. Because He is holy. And we're holy because we're in Him. We are the only, we are, we are only the possession of God because we are in Christ who is God's own Son. That's why I'm His possession. I'm His very precious possession because I'm in Christ. And Christ is His own precious Son. We are only in the light because we are in Him who is the light. And we have compassion from God because we are in Christ. And finally, beloved, we can only be His witness when it is the power of Christ proclaiming through us. You cannot speak, you will not speak unless it is the power of God, unless it is the Holy Spirit. He said, when my Spirit comes upon you, you will have what? Power, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. If we're not speaking, what does that say? 
We have not the power. We have not the fullness of the Spirit to speak out. And what does that mean? It means we just need to get before Him again. We need to rehearse these things. We need to say, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Fill me with Your Spirit. Lord, show me those things in this life I must repent of. Show me the things that I must repent of that hold me back from declaring Your marvelous, wonderful praises. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 is our summary verse for this marvelous study. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen? Amen. Beloved, we are a motley bunch. We are a motley bunch of erstwhile sinners who deserve eternal damnation, but because we are in Christ... We have all these spiritual privileges. Are you not grateful? Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful, so grateful for your word and for the marvelous privileges, Lord, that you have just showered us with. Father, I pray that we would think on these things. And that we would be people so full of your grace and so full of your love and your power that we would be bold in our witness to tell others. Lord, strengthen us with the strength of your might. We're thankful for your grace, but Lord, we need your power. Move in us, O God. Alert us, wake us up, stir us up. Make us a bold people for your glorious praises. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's praise our God together. When he rolls up his sleeves and he puts on the wrist, our God is an awesome God. The thunder in his foot, the lightning in his fist, our God is an awesome God. Lord, he wasn't choking when he kicked him out of it. Wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, so you better be believing that our God is a 